So I'm at Cherry Beach. It's a stretch of industrial land along the lakeshore, east of downtown Toronto. It's famous for new agey techno dance parties going back to the 90s. It's also known for being a spot where cops have traditionally brought people to beat the shit out of them. There's even a song about it called the Cherry Beach Express. Anyway, I'm waiting by my car on a gravel road with a volunteer outreach worker named Marcel North Gallant. We're here to talk to a woman who camps at Cherry. We're calling her Jay. Jay's a bit of an anomaly. There aren't a lot of women camping solo. Jay has a couple of campsites at Cherry Beach. There's one that people know about and another one that people don't. After about 20 minutes, she comes out of the bush and we all get in the car. Starting route to the Victorian. Yeah, and I feel bad about you know taking so long, but it's kind of one of those. It's, it's one of those things about being a woman camping out there is you know diplomacy. I think a lot of the men are more able to just kind of bounce back into the bush and do their own thing because you know they don't tend to have people encroaching in the same way, and they don't tend to have people questioning their very existence there. Jay has to be a really good neighbor. And she says it kind of makes her feel like a sitcom wife. Scrambling to clean up after people, mediating conflicts, also keeping people alive. Jay gets paid 40 bucks a week by a local community health center to train people in encampments on how to respond to overdoses. And all of that takes a lot of time she just doesn't really have. That's why we're doing this interview in the car. She needs to get her tent winter ready, which means getting a lot of construction materials, fire extinguishers, and tools down to the beach. And that means a lot of running around while the sun's still up. You know, I'm building more than I've built before. Before, I've just had a tent with, like, kind of adjunct stuff that I've just had, you know, sheets of stuff over, whatever, whatever, you know, like a little two by here or two by there. But now this is, like, a big thing. And, you know, there are times when I do kind of require someone's help lifting it or whatever, whatever. I don't want to ask. You know, there can be the, you know, the quid pro quo kind of dynamic going on. Like, you should have a man out here with you or whatever. Even just, like, making fun of, you know, the fact that I can't, you know, my body strength isn't necessarily what theirs is or whatever. Shows me in a position of, I mean, I don't like to say weakness, but, well, actual literal weakness. Even the people I know out there, I don't know them, know them. You know, you can know someone for a year or whatever and see them totally fine, totally fine, and then you see them in a different situation and, bam, you realize, like, oh, wow, this is actually... Someone who could probably be incredibly dangerous to me. You know, luckily I'm kind of fatalistic about it, so whatever, it doesn't matter. Like, nothing matters, I can live, I could die, but, you know, it's still not ideal. We're on our way to the Victoria, one of the shelter hotels the city's been leasing to temporarily house people during the pandemic. Jay has a room there. At first I was kind of confused about why she camps at Cherry when she has a place indoors, But Jay's lived in five different places in the last six months. First, she was camping under a bridge near a busy intersection with her two cats. I was practically invisible, kind of cradled by these wonderful little bushes and trees. But then in February, things got a little rough. 
these horrible windstorm, rainstorm, rain just lashing my tent. My tent had been ripped by somebody. I was already trying to fix that, and then the rain comes and there's that freezing, sleeting kind of, you know, all of my clothes got soaked. Then when the pandemic hit, someone from the city came by. They just opened up apartments at a nice mid-century building uptown called the Broadway. People could stay there for four to six months to get settled before it got demolished. So Jay took a room. That didn't go so well either. They plunked us down there with no consultation with the neighborhood at all. Even though there was harm reduction there and people had apartments, people were using out in the street. I mean, it was not unreasonable. Like, I'm not on the side of these you know, condo assholes because some of them were really shitty and acted like vigilantes, like they were trying to come into the lobby, you know, talking about those people, like were ruining the value of their neighborhood or whatever. Um, it was a very us and them kind of thing. News crews started showing up every time there was an ambulance or a fire truck outside the Broadway. So the place closed down after just two months. And Jay got moved 16 kilometers away to a shelter hotel in Scarborough. Then there was this fire drill one day. Jay didn't leave her room because she had too much to do, get paid, pay her phone bill, go to the doctor. She said the supervisor on duty okayed it. But later they told her she was being transferred out anyway. I said, you've got to cancel this transfer. He's like, no, it's, it's already put in. So I've, like, flipped out. This is why people don't trust the city. You give me a key to a place, you let me get just settled enough to start feeling okay about being housed again, and then you fucking yank it away? Because why? Because one of your people's covering their ass, or because you don't want to admit that you're wrong? That's how Jay ended up at Cherry Beach. And even though she got a spot at the Victoria soon after that, she just can't risk getting kicked out in the middle of winter with nowhere to sleep and no plan. Plus, it feels good to be doing things down at Cherry Beach. She's learning how to fix a motorcycle, and she's trying to figure out a DIY method for piping hot air from a fire into her insulated tent. We're rolling up to the Vic. Where that biker is on the left, yeah. if you can park, basically, well, where the fire hydrant kind of is. Okay. People stop there all the time, yeah, because that's it, right? That's the front yeah, right there where every motherfucker is. It can be harder to get stuff done at the Victoria. There's only one elevator, and the stairwell is totally off limits. So a lot of the time, because of arguments and people moving things, it takes 15 or 20 minutes just to get out of the building. I'm just going to run my bag up and uh, dump these uh, boxes. Okay. So, yeah. But I will be very, very quick. Okay. Uh, thank you for the ride, by the way. It helps a lot. Right, I just, I will have to probably feed my cat really quick, but just like that's it. Okay. In mid-May, I got a call from one of my friends who works in harm reduction, and she was like, uh, we just need more people down under the gardener. There's all these evictions of people who are living in tents, um, and we need more eyes. That's Simone Schmidt. Simone's a musician, and normally the spring would be about getting ready for touring. It was this time in COVID where we weren't going out at all, um, and so the city was really quiet 
there weren't people around except for like <laughs> this massive force that was there to evict people in tents. There was city bylaw enforcement, uh, parks ambassadors. There were city workers with big trucks and claws and bulldozers. And there were a lot of police. Under the gardener, this big machine had been stopped by a woman who was standing there with her hands on her hips. A standoff between crews and an advocate seen standing between City of Toronto trucks and a homeless encampment near Bay and Lakeshore. The video shared by an outreach worker who says the city should not be removing these campsites during the pandemic, a space that four people call home. Encampments under the Gardner Expressway still got bulldozed. The city's been doing this for years. But when a clip of the bulldozer standoff got picked up by the media, the sudden public scrutiny put the city on the defensive. At the time, Mayor Tory had announced an eviction moratorium. No one would be evicted for not paying rent. Meanwhile, the city was evicting people from tents. People who were pushed out of the overcrowded shelter system that was struggling to keep up with new outbreaks. People who didn't have anywhere else to go. Here's Toronto's fire chief, Matthew Pegg, on that day's COVID briefing. Anyone who facilitates, suggests, or encourages anyone to remain in, let alone to move into an encampment, is simply placing lives at risk. We had teams of people who were on site on Lakeshore clearing previously vacated encampments. The protests certainly impeded their ability to do their important work to clear the hazards that existed on the site. Some journalists noticed discrepancies between the official narrative and what they were hearing from people on the ground. I just wanted to circle back to the issue of the encampments. Uh, people who were there this morning uh, told me that there were homeless people there. These weren't vacated encampments and that uh, they were upset with what they were offered. They After going to a couple evictions, Simone noticed that most of the people showing up were burnt-out frontline workers on their time off. So they called for backup. A lot of their friends are musicians and artists who are complaining about being stuck at home. So Simone made a Facebook post asking for people to join up. And even though they couldn't stop the evictions, their presence was changing how they were being done. So rather than like offering people shelter hotel spots with big bulldozers behind them, city trucks would come in after the person had accepted the offer and packed up and the city trucks would like dispose of people's belongings. They were starting to gather intel on how the city was responding to the encampments, but they couldn't pass it on to the people living in them because they didn't really know them. So we couldn't say like, you don't have to take this spot or hey, like the shelter hotels, make sure you ask where they are. We realized that in order to do any kind of proper advocacy work, we would have to be in regular relationship. And concurrently, we realized that like what people were facing in encampments was such wretched behavior, paint being thrown at them, um, people calling the cops all the time. And we realized like, well, this isn't being done in our name. What can be done in our name? So they formed a group called the Encampment Support Network, or ESN. And soon a dozen people turned into about 180. In six neighborhoods across the city, volunteers visit encampments seven days a week to check in with residents, ask what they need, and to find a way to get it.
After the evictions under the Gardner Bridge, people were scattered. A lot of them ended up in less visible spots along a busy stretch of Toronto's lakeshore that's dense with condos and tourists in the warmer months. There's a domestic airport in Queen's Quay where you can take a ferry to the Toronto Islands to pet some goats, grab a hot dog, and go to the beach. Unlike other encampments, like the one in Moss Park, where a lot of people have a long-standing relationship to the neighborhood, this area is in constant flux. People trying to find some stability in a dense cityscape where they're repeatedly being told to move, to hide, and to disappear. There was a crazy storm two, two days ago, and I know some folks who, whose tents were destroyed, just like blown away in the wind. Back in late July, an ESN outreach volunteer named Stephen Foster led me through a small encampment in an area that they call the silos. It's a narrow pier. On one side you have the water and a fence and some yachts <laughs> just across a small little canal. and. Then there are these huge malting silos that I think have not been used for many years. There are about 10 to 12 tents lining one side of the pier leading down to the water. He says that it's one of the harder spots to set up. It's windier by the water, so you need to secure everything or you'll lose it. Also, you're really out in the open, practically on display. As encampments have multiplied, the city of Toronto has been trying to move as many people as possible out of them and into temporary spaces. They leased 20 hotels, most of them far away from downtown. They're run by nonprofits like Dixon Hall and the Salvation Army. People from this city-run program called Streets to Homes show up at encampments without notice to try to move people into those indoor spaces. Part of the reason people set up at silos is because they want to get noticed, for better or for worse. A place like this place is also more likely to get you housed because there are more complaints. There's more nimbyism. And people who choose spots that are secluded and quote-unquote safer um, are going to be ignored even, even more. One of my favorite guys to listen to is George Carlin because he's so smart and he's, he's right. That's William. The one percenters make all of the money, pay none of the taxes. The middle class people do all of the work, pay all of the taxes. The poor people were there just to scare the shit out of the middle class people to keep them going to those jobs and paying the taxes so the rich can take off with all the money. Earlier this year, William quit his job in Fredericton, then he lost his apartment. So he moved to Toronto to try to make something happen. But he got here with the pandemic. So he ended up sleeping rough. He says that earlier in the summer, he came by silos. He found people pretty upset. It was people on the yacht chipping golf balls over towards where everyone is in their tents. I don't know if you've ever been hit with a golf ball. It's not a pleasant feeling. Nothing was done. They were never charged. Police never did anything. If that had been vice versa, where it was the people on the pier lobbing golf balls over the other way, everybody would have been arrested. It would have just been like another reason to hate on homeless people. All of a sudden, Streets to Home shows up. They're offering spots at the Delta, one of the shelter hotels. 
Most people are accepting the offer, and piles of plastic bags, suitcases, and backpacks start building up on the walkway. They can only take two large plastic bags with them. So, without knowing much about where they're going, people are frantically trying to figure out what they'll need there. An ESN volunteer named Nathan Doucette is maneuvering between streets to homes and residents, trying to make sure people who really want out don't get left behind. Nathan and a streets to homes worker approach a man who looks maybe late 40s, early 50s. His name's Adam. Adam, this is a person that can maybe put you on a list literally right now. So if you want to start that process and see what can happen in the next few days or what's going to go down, this is the person to talk to. Adam, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Have you met before? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. you were at Little Nori. We got you into a spot though, right there from there? You, you thought you did. What happened? <laughs> you don't even know what happened? I don't personally know what happened. Okay. So are well. you recording? So what happened was, back in March, Adam was staying at this spot right by the water called Little Norway Park, along with about 25 other people, including William. Then earlier this summer, Streets to Home showed up to clear them all out. He says they offered him an apartment at the Broadway, that mid-century building uptown that Jay was at for a couple of months. It sounded good, so he filled out the paperwork at the park. It's about 10 kilometers away, and because they knew he liked to bike... They said they'd take his two bags of stuff in the bus, and if he wanted, he could just meet them up there. I'm like, fuck, right on, Young and Eglinton, that's a good ride. So I cooked it up there. The guy's like, oh yeah, we got your name, take a seat. About 20 minutes later, he's like, oh, sorry, you don't get this apartment, this is a program. We, uh, we're not accepting you, you don't have a social worker, and we don't have your paperwork, you gotta go. Adam asked for his two bags of stuff back but they said they didn't have it. And then when he got upset, they called security. And then I was like, right back down here. Everyone's like, yo, what are you doing here? You got an apartment. I'm like, no, I don't. So he's less than enthusiastic about the prospect of taking an offer now. Honestly, I don't get it. Why does she not know that I didn't get housed? Isn't that a question that should be asked? Around a dozen people left the silos for the shelter hotel that day, but Adam wasn't one of them. We went back to his tent at Fleet. Fleet's this little grassy area between a roadway and streetcar tracks, and it's about an eight-minute bike ride from the silos. They call it Fleet because it's on Fleet Street, the other side of Fleet Street is lined with condos, but there are these huge, thick trees that wrap around the encampment and make it hard to see the people living there, even if you're just walking by. When Adam told the streets to homes worker that he stays at Fleet now, she looked confused. Even though people had been living at Fleet for weeks and it was only a few blocks away, she didn't know people were over there. I've been out here for five fucking years. Winter, summer, <clears throat> doesn't matter. You, you may even have seen me at Bay in Adelaide, sleeping on the street corner. Every day, I slept there for like two years. Every day. My little brother was killed on the opposite corner, doing a drug deal. I slept there because that's where I felt close to him. 
Maybe that's why I've been out here five years, right? Maybe it's not. A lot of people will say, ah, it's a cop-out. I just know that when I go to that corner, I feel all right. But the city made me move from there. This is what it is, I guess. Like, I don't even know really where my place is even in life. Like, I feel lost. I don't even know, like I'm like, so sad right now that it's not even, I'm so sad that I'm doing fentanyl. Like I never did this shit before in my life. I'm not saying this is the first time. So don't be like nervous that I'm gonna die on you. I have no choice but to do this. It's so stupid. By the end of the day, almost everyone's been moved out of silos, except for a man named David, who's been a fixture for the last couple months. Nathan thinks that a lot of people will come back from the Delta, though. He's seen it before. The problem is that every building is run by a different agency. They have different rules. So there's like all of this bureaucracy to sift through before you can even get to the basic notion of just like, what is my housing and how long am I going to be able to stay here and like, literally, those people can't answer those questions right now. To help residents know what to ask when they get an offer, outreach volunteers distribute this flyer of questions. It says things like, is the room single or double occupancy? Can I use drugs? What could get me evicted? And can I have visitors? But even if the place doesn't seem like the best fit, Nathan says there are a lot of reasons why people accept it anyway. Someone is coming down here and they're offering you a hotel room and you got like the cops broke into your tent last night and took a picture of your bike or like someone else pulled up and like pulled a knife on you or whatever. Eventually you're just like, I'll do anything to have one day that isn't like this. A woman carrying two huge plastic bags of her stuff passes by with her dog behind her. She looks relieved. Where are you going now? You're going to Delta. That's near the DVP, is it? Is yeah, that the Kennedy. yeah, yeah, exactly. Kennedy. Yes. And yep. we get to have our dog in the room with us. Oh, that's even better. See, oh the my one god. We were going to before we were going to have to put him on the floor by Yeah, himself. that's right. I like your curly hair. Oh, thanks so much. That's I got That's naturally curly hair. Eh? It is. Yeah. That's so cute. Straight from my mom to me, yo. Like That's so cute. <laughs> One of the things you'll often hear ESN volunteers asking encampment residents is, have you seen Streets to Homes? And the reason is, when Streets to Homes shows up, it usually means something's about to happen. Either a temporary housing offer, an eviction, or both. But it's not always easy to tell whether Streets to Homes came through. They don't show up regularly, and usually the people on the city side have uniforms, parks ambassadors, cops, sanitation workers, 
but Streets to Homes is in plain clothes, so they can be hard to ID. And maybe it's a little hard for Streets to Homes to recognize themselves these days. When the program started in 2005, its goal was to help homeless people transition into permanent housing. But in order to do that, there has to be enough affordable housing on the market, and there isn't. So if they're not getting people into permanent housing, what are they doing? Streets to Homes get strategically deployed to encampments that the city's prioritizing for clearing to convince people to move into temporary shelters. They drop in unannounced, often with cops and other city workers. Sometimes 15 or 20 of them will show up all at once. You can say no, but it's a gamble. They might come back around, but also you might come back to find that your home was thrown away. The process of moving people inside, from getting their details and getting them to the shelter, usually happens over a few hours. And once Streets to Homes drops people off, that's it. The City of Toronto will tell you the number of people they've moved from encampments into indoor spaces, but they don't track how many people leave those indoor spaces. And you can't really blame them. When those spaces don't work out, a lot of people just set up outside again, in less visible spots with less people around. And that's probably not the story the city wants to tell. Two months later, I'm back at Fleet. The trees surrounding the encampment are thinning out as the leaves start to fall. And there are maybe five or six tents scattered around the edges of the grassy clearing. On one side, there's a patchwork of tarps covering an area with all kinds of items. There's bike wheels, clothes, plastic furniture, snacks, towels, everything. That area belongs to David, the last holdout from Silos. It's his new spot. David stuck it out at Silos for a while, and then one day he got a trespassing notice. They wanted to do construction on the adjacent lot, so David had to go. But David didn't want to go. He was all set up there and packing and moving all his things would be a huge undertaking. So, Streets to Home staff and this guy Scott McKean, who's the manager of the city's community safety and well-being unit, they started coming by every day to talk David into leaving. David kept trying to hold them off, saying that he'd move out the next day. Or the next day. After a week of this, Scott brought three cops and three corporate security officers to the site. So, now David's a fleet. Stephen Foster and another ESN volunteer, Jill Harris, are talking to two people from the city. But not just any two people. The park's general supervisor, Esther Afriat, and Dan Bro, the manager of something called Specialized Program for Interdivisional Enhanced Responsiveness to Vulnerability, or SPIDER. Apparently they're here to talk to David about the city coming to do a garbage pickup. David's been wanting it for weeks. He spent a lot of time bagging and lugging garbage to the dumpsters in the area. A lot of it wasn't even his stuff, but he knew that leaving it there meant more calls to 311, the city's non-emergency line. And that meant more attention from the city. Not the good kind. But David's not here. So after about an hour, Esther and Dan start heading back to their white pickup to leave. Then, of course, David shows up. <laughs> How are you, sir? Are you tired? Yeah. Did you just go to do a food run? They talk for a bit, 
figuring out logistics, confirming that the pile of bags they think is garbage is the garbage. David's being very polite. He lightheartedly tells them that the garbage has been attracting all kinds of animals. Raccoons, of course, but also skunks and coyotes. He asks them if they have any army tents. Esther says no. That would be the feds. They don't tell us anything. No, this is empty. I can edit some more. Okay. Seems like, yes, Esther and Dan are arranging for garbage pickup, but they're also trying to coax him into getting rid of more of his things. It's a big mess. They're using gas to me. I know, but it's a big mess. We were here all this morning and it looks good when we left. We spent so how, how much clothing do I have? They end up making a plan. City workers will come tomorrow to pick up everything that's in the pile, and David will be there when it happens. Okay. I think we got a plan. And then Dan and Esther leave. David takes me, Jill, and Steve to this more secluded area under a tarp canopy so that we can talk. There's four lawn chairs, they're all different, and beside the chairs there's this modern table with a glass top and a wood base. He says it's cherry wood and it looks brand new. On the table, there's this large foil tray like the kind that you see at a huge family barbecue, and it's full of salad. A lot of people in the area know about David before they meet him. He says that people come around asking for him. If they're hungry, if they need information, or a tune-up, or a tent, they know him by his nickname. What's your nickname? Uh, Georgia. I'm from Georgia, ex-Soviet Union. Anything I touch is done. Like what kinds of things? Like a food things, anything we need, we have it. So you like bring a lot of the stuff yeah. to the encampments? Basically 100%. The best, number one experienced, street homeless. Why do you think you're so good at that? Like what makes you so good at that? I've been raised in a different country and I've been raised like a hard way. It's kind of survival things. So basically, if there's no lights, no power, but the pe- people over here mostly, they have a soft life. Right now, I don't have a welfare, but I'm not hungry, I'm not dying. I'm dressed nice. One of the security guards gave me a compliment. If I didn't know you're homeless, where you dress, you look like I'm not homeless. And all the thing he told me to shave. <laughs> David fled Georgia in 2006 during a period of worsening relations with Russia. He ended up homeless after going through a divorce. Some police officers found him on the street and they told him to go to a shelter. They said they'll help you. But the rules were too rigid and if you broke them, they'd put you out whether you had somewhere else to go or not. And that's what happened to him in the middle of winter. Basically... I spent all winter on the street, first time on the street. I didn't die, I survived. And in springtime, they offered me one couple of police officers, they can help me with the shelter. I said, now it's the camping time, so legally we can have a tent. And I said, no, thank you. <laughs> like on the street, I feel more happy. Every person's question is, David, wintertime you go in shelter? I said, no. Oh, it's going to be freezing condition. I said, 
I spend some time before I get blankets or things on the street. Thermotarp, this, 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 styrofoam. So basically everything is like, uh, you can get it. Yeah. If I get, can get the Louis Vuitton from the garbage, <laughs> trust me, we can get the styrofoam from the construction <laughs> job site. <laughs> And do you teach people like how to? Yeah. Yeah. Not 100%. <laughs> you cannot tell the, all the secrets. <laughs> In the time he's been living around the lakeshore, David's seen a lot of people leave for the shelter hotels. And he's worried about it. Because the city rolled out the shelter hotel program so quickly in their rush to get people out of the overcrowded shelters, a lot of the city staff who got redeployed to shelter hotels had little or no training in harm reduction at all. This hotel thinks it was a big mistake. It's not just put them in the hotel. No, it's, it doesn't work that way. I said from the beginning to the people, don't go, don't go, don't go. The people are going to die over there. There is the results, how many people die. Social distance. You cannot go to another neighbor's room. You cannot check on him, this and that. Nobody check on them. Overdose. David doesn't use drugs, but he learned how to reverse an overdose by calling 911 and taking direction over the phone. Since then, he became interested in learning more, so he asked people who use drugs to teach him. He says he saved seven people's lives. One of them was a 13-year-old girl. He feels like if he could teach himself how to respond to overdoses, the shelter should be doing a lot better. They don't try, they don't care. In my experience on Lakeshore, I had zero overdose. I'm not that experienced, they are. What were you doing differently? Nothing, I just care about the person. When I was uh, living in shelter, Dunford and Main Street, it's a Dixon Hall. Friend of mine, he's from Somalia, he got overdosed. When I called the staff, they said he's dead, he's gone. I did CPR mouth to mouth, I bring him back. You cannot tell he's dead, you gotta keep trying. David's been organizing all the supplies under his 20 by 40 foot tarp with the help of other people at Fleet. He says at least five or six tents can fit under it without getting wet through the winter, especially if he walls them in somehow. There's room for other people to stay in David's big tent. He just has one rule. Never steal from the people. If you want to steal, go steal from the big company. But steal from neighbors, my country, it's getting punished really hard. So basically, you cannot show your face on the street no more. So this way, another person's gonna think before he's gonna do it. I met one girl, uh, she was living with us at the lakeshore. And if we close for 10 seconds, our eyes, when we opened, we was all scared that something is gone. And she had no clue she was doing that. 
I always tried to communicate with her this, this, but it was not helping. And she was keep stealing, keep stealing. I was scared to sleep. She got kicked out, this person. But basically one day she came and she brought me a bicycle as a gift. And she said, he was the most nice person to me in this place. Like I was happy, so that was not for no reason. I believe she was abused and like uh, lots of things she was doing and she don't remember next day. That's uh, what I get it from her. And a lot of people like uh, they cannot talk to no no one. Sometimes some people they talk to me, but I'm not that professional to help them. But uh, lots of people they need really really help because some people they are generations, and this is on them faces everything. Is there anything that the city could offer you that would make you want to stop living on the street? No. The first thing, if they can offer me, that's housing, apartment. But I'm not going to take it. The waiting list is 15 years. They can be a wheelchair. They can be a mother with the kids, whatever. And how am I supposed to feel if I'm gonna take without the line somebody's spot? Not me. A few days later, I get a call from Jill Harris, one of the ESN volunteers who's at Fleet. Because she wanted to keep tabs on what people in the neighborhood are saying about the encampments, she joined a neighborhood Facebook group. So you know that day that you came to the fleet encampment to talk to David? Yeah. Um, I went on the Fort York Neighborhood Association group after that. And that same day, they posted this photo of that encampment from above. Like someone had taken a photo from their condo and posted this image of the park with city trucks around it and said... Is it finally happening? Are they finally removing the illegal chop shop? There have been city trucks there since early this morning taking truckloads of stuff away. Oh my God. Anytime anyone posts about that encampment, people go crazy. It's just people being like, good, get them out of there. I want that park back as if they have like ownership of this place. Someone says like, I heard they might install a portable toilet and people are shocked. Like they're constantly talking about oh, there's public urination from these people and stuff. But then the thought of actually installing a portable toilet is absurd to them. So it's just all these comments. And then at the end, people are like, oh, it looks like they were just cleaning out the trash. They're still there. Nothing has changed. Keep calling 311 every single day. It's the only way we'll get them out of here. The other thing that I see people post about sometimes is being in downtown Toronto and constantly having to deal with noise a lot of them have plumbing issues. And I think there is this resentment, whether it's conscious or not, of I spent a million dollars on this place mm -hmm. and I still have all these issues. And on top of that, 
I have people that are living across the street from me for free. Housing is a basic need. Unlike healthcare, though, a lot of people don't think it should be free. But the fight for both of those things started around the same time. They just shook out differently. After World War II, veterans were coming home, but they couldn't afford housing. So they started a national protest movement. They squatted a Montreal military hospital and they stormed the vacant Hotel Vancouver, raising a banner inviting hundreds of vets to come and get rooms. That pressure led to the creation of a national housing program. And by the 60s, the feds were building 20,000 units of public housing across the country per year, which was a lot in those days. That was the high point. Over the next few decades, that national housing program was slowly dismantled until it was finally defunded by Jean Chrétien's liberals in 1993. So even though homelessness might seem like an inevitable part of living in a city now, it's actually a choice. The choice to defy treaty commitments and displace people from their land. The choice to underfund community-based supports. The choice to treat housing as a vehicle for investment instead of a basic necessity. And it wasn't long ago that things didn't feel so inevitable. Years and years and years ago, uh, my father came to visit me here in Toronto and he's from a little town in Saskatchewan. And he saw a man begging in the street here. And he said, what's that man doing? And he said, he's begging. At that stage, there were very few people begging. This is Barrick German. Barrick got into doing outreach work in the 80s, in rooming houses and churches, and then at a Toronto organization called Street Health. At the time, there was another deadly virus putting people out on the street. A lot of people who got AIDS, they, they would lose their work and lose their income. And so uh, they would be either homeless or, or short of food, of course. The shelter system was at capacity then, too. The waitlist for government-assisted housing was eight years long. Now it's about 10. And there was no new social housing getting built. So Barrick and about a dozen outreach workers formed the Toronto Disaster Relief Committee, or TDRC. They pressured the city to declare homelessness a national disaster. Then in 1998, a community was forming on an empty lot on the lakeshore at the turnoff to Cherry Beach. If you looked up to the north, you could see the Gardner Expressway overhead. They called it Tent City. A handful of homeless people set up tents and rough shacks on an old industrial site on the waterfront. The land is owned by Home Depot, a giant hardware chain, and someday the site will be developed. That's a clip from a doc called Shelter from the Storm, directed by Michael Connolly. Home Depot bought the land in 1999, but because of local opposition to a big box store, they couldn't build. So other people did. And we built this house of, uh, of uh, different materials, of uh, plywood that uh, we got uh, from a Thai restaurant there. Tom Gold and his housemate Carl Schmidt had a cabin at Tent City. They found it impossible to work when they lived in men's hostels because of the restricted hours. With their own cabin, they could pick up the occasional renovation gig. Members of TDRC were at Tent City on most days, 
They brought in aid and basic needs. Sometimes they'd mediate tensions between residents. They would host these winterizing workshops and bring in carpenters to fix roofs or install heaters. They planned demonstrations together over buckets of KFC. In December of 2000, just days before Christmas, Ontario's Ministry of the Environment ordered Home Depot to clear Tent City because of the soil contamination. But Barrick and the TDRC blocked it with the help of then-city councillor Jack Layton. They demanded that the city offer residents land to relocate to, or they weren't going to leave. These are the people who live in Tent City. These are the people. What do we talk about when we use rhetoric? Community development, working with people. That ought to be what we're doing. With the threat of impending eviction, the TDRC called the media, and they arranged to have housing brought in on trucks. They were called durakits, these small one-room houses made of recycled wood, and they're meant for disaster relief. In the morning when I had to go down, I was told the authorities have blocked the roads. They've, they've got a big uh, uh, concrete uh, slab leading into Tent City. So, I mean, I was a brave and younger man then, and I said, well, we'll get it out of there or we'll take it out. <laughs> the crane came and, and pulled the big block of cement away from the from the road, and, and the big trucks entered with uh, with uh, small houses, but uh, but big houses. And then the cranes would swing the, the, the houses off of the back of the trucks and land them in Tent City. Despite warnings, Tent City was able to fend off evictions for another two years. By 2002, the tents had all been replaced with houses. There were about 120 residents and a bunch of dogs and cats. I was in a meeting in the morning, and someone got a hold of me, and they said they're on the move. They're going to take out Tent City today. September 24, 2002 was the last day of Tent City. We went into the encampment and it was quiet. I started to knock on people's doors and say, look, we've got to get up. There's an attack coming. And people didn't believe me. And um, then through the gates, they started to come, truck after truck after truck after truck, and security guards and police. I stood in front of the first truck and put my hands on the truck, and the police and security took me out. Well, I had about 25 cops coming up to my door and saying to me that I had to leave now or else I'd get be ch- uh, I would be charged, no questions asked. Just leave. After four years, Tent City's residents were locked out of the gates. They weren't even given the chance to prepare or pack their belongings. Home Depot workers started mowing the overgrown grass and pulling weeds on the other side of the fence. A few people were arrested for trespassing. And it was horrific for people who had nothing in the first place to to lose everything that they had. But they weren't going to leave quietly. A group of organizers and residents shut down a Home Depot press conference. The press conference has been canceled. And then they headed to City Hall. That's Barrick, trying to get the former mayor, Mel Lastman, to come talk to them. Because Tent City happened in an era of massive protest around housing and homelessness, they had broad support. 
There were lots of union flags and even some former mayors at the eviction. So the city was forced into offering a rent subsidy program. If residents could find moderately priced housing, which was still possible at the time, they would help cover the rent. And even though the program was limited to tent city residents, it meant that those hundred or so people had a shot at growing old and stable housing. One of Tent City's leaders, this man named Dry, just died last month at age 70. But he had lived in his apartment, and in his good uh, one-bedroom apartment, up until just a short time ago, since the eviction. He'd lived there for 20 years, and he was able to reunite with his family. His children came when he died. Barrick's 73 now, and he still lives in his Toronto community housing unit downtown, close to where Tent City used to be. Even though he's mostly retired, he still talks to Kathy Crow, a street nurse from his TDRC days, to keep tabs on what's happening on the ground. Tent City uh, was a, a similar uh, kind of vision to what we see in the, in the park today. And, and are things worse? Uh, yes, they're decidedly worse. Without the support of others, meaning the solidarity support, people living in, in either Tent City or the Tent Cities that are emerging in Toronto today, they will not remain, meaning they'll always be either harassed or driven out. We are in the middle of something quite horrendous, something something that uh, that is not just going to go away. There's a degree to which the class difference in Toronto is so massive that we're at that place that I first saw, you know, in San Francisco, where people are just like walk right over people sleeping on the street. There's like these goggles on that impede people from recognizing each other. That's Simone again. So as a class like division in Toronto grows, there's more and more of this like relegation of caring for each other to the caring professions. The problem becomes configured as people and their presence rather than a structural deficit. And that's something that has to change if we're gonna see like a, a real movement, you know? We're heading into winter through the second wave of this pandemic. At the start of October, a couple of activist organizations and 14 encampment residents, including Derek Black, who you heard in the last episode, they went to court. They were requesting an injunction to prevent the city from enforcing the bylaw that prohibits camping in parks. That request was denied. And in his ruling, one of the things that Judge Paul Shabbos said was that there was no evidence that safe shelter spaces, including individual housing units, were not available to the homeless population. Even though a separate court ruling the week before found that the city wasn't meeting safe distancing standards in its shelters. He compared the people in encampments to protesters because they're unwilling to go to shelters, calling homelessness a, quote, unfortunate reality, end quote. Then the city came out with its winter plan for people experiencing homelessness. They offered 560 new beds. Frontline workers responded, saying that there are actually more than a thousand people living outside right now, 
so the city increased the number to 620. Still, a lot of those beds are in communal spaces when we know the virus is airborne. One of those settings is unironically called the Better Living Center, and it's 100 day beds separated by plexiglass barriers in a huge room where the lights are kept on 24 hours a day. And even if people want to go, when frontline workers are calling central intake to find a shelter bed, it's rare that they can actually get one. The encampments have started thinning out a bit with the first snowfall, and some people are still trying to get inside somewhere. But even with the threat of a clearing that could happen any day now, people are gearing up for the long haul, padding tents with layers of blankets, setting them up on shipping pallets and styrofoam and covering them with tarps. And some tents have been replaced by warmer, sturdier options. Now there are fluorescent green pods made out of polystyrene insulation and equipped with carbon monoxide detectors. There are wooden, tiny shelters with a window and a locking door. Back at Fleet, David requested a hand-painted canvas sign from ESN's sign committee, who makes and distributes them to residents so they can hang them up. They have slogans like, Can't stay home without a home, and We are not the virus. When ESN volunteers asked him what he wanted the sign to say, he responded, Never give up. Never give up. On the next episode of We Are Not the Virus. We are building foam dome-like sleeping compartments. Uh, a carbon monoxide detector goes into each of them. We keep it really low just to heat the tent, and it keeps it. Even a little thing like this, I'm good. We all have fire extinguishers. Why couldn't we come in and do fire safety training and put a few, ma- like... Because these people don't want that. Like, the, you got to have... Have you asked? Yeah. <laughs> of course they do. We're heading to encampments across the city to talk about fire. You'll hear from people who are catching heat for trying to stay warm and about keeping the flame alive without getting burnt. I make this show with Ali Graham. Music is composed by Jesse Perlstein and Jeremy Costello, who also made our theme music. Additional production by Chandra Bullockon. The editorial team for this episode was Stephen Foster, Nathan Doucette, Jill Harris, Simone Schmidt, Marcel North Gallant, Charles Tilden, and Frank Green. Special thanks to Kelly Anderson, Daniel Rothstein, Kathy Crow, Seema Atri, Ali Khan Pabani, Maddie Ritz, Doug Johnson Hatlam, and everyone who spoke to us for this show. If you want to watch Michael Connolly's full documentary, Shelter from the Storm, there's a link in our show notes. The Encampment Support Network reluctantly has a Patreon now at patreon.com slash esntoronto. Donate so that we can continue to supply survival gear to people facing winter outside while the city votes no on expropriating hotels, and so that you can get our weekly newsletter. The situation on the ground is changing pretty fast these days, so if you want to know how you can support encampment residents and their struggles, send us an email at report.on.toronto at gmail.com. Okay, that's it.